like that. This has been giving a call to salvation, an invitation, if you like, that began back in chapter 3 and verse 7. And it starts out with a negative emphasis. The illustration is Israel. He says, if you hear God's word, don't harden your hearts like Israel did. And what happened to Israel? They wandered around and they died in the wilderness. And the application is, if you hear the gospel and don't heed the gospel, you are doomed. You say, well, Dan, I'm not real comfortable. I, I don't really like that message. Well, I'm sorry. You know, there's a whole lot of what I call cafeteria Christianity today. You come along in the Bible and you say, I like that, I'll have some of that. I don't like that, I'll take that. You see, it's very evident in the Bible that the danger of hell is real. And any preacher who avoids this truth is being unfaithful to God's Word and unfaithful to the needs of his listeners. See, if I cry fire in a crowded building, it's not only against the law, it's extremely cruel and dangerous. But you know what is more cruel and dangerous? To see the building in flames and not to cry fire. That's why I guarantee you that as long as I have a breath left, I will be preaching about the consequences of unbelief. And when we do it in the right way and with the right spirit, warning unbelievers of the danger of hell is one of the greatest kindnesses that we can show them. And that's what the writer has been doing in chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4 and verse 13. And now in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, he turns to the positive side of the gospel. You see, we're not simply called to salvation because it saves us from spiritual death. We are called to salvation because it brings us spiritual life. We should respond to the call of God not just because of what will happen if we don't, but because of what will happen if we do. Not just because of His wrath, but because of His grace. Not just because He is our judge, but because He is our merciful and faithful High Priest. You know, if we had a testimony time this morning, I'm sure that some of you would say, you know, I came to salvation initially out of fear of hell. And others would say, well, through a message or through the Word of God, I really saw the beauty of the Lord Jesus and I was drawn to Him because of His love. Both of those incentives are in the Bible. And in verses 14 to 16, we see the call presented in this positive light. And there are really two exhortations in these three verses. The first is at the end of verse 14 where he says, let us hold fast our confession. And the second exhortation is at the beginning of verse 16, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And so to these Jews who had left Judaism 
and had come up to the edge of salvation but had not committed their lives to Jesus Christ and who because of persecution and affliction were looking over their shoulder at Judaism and thinking about going back, he says, hold fast and draw near. They had made a profession of faith in Christ. He says, hold on to that and come all the way to the throne of grace. You see, the one of the things we're seeing in the book of Hebrews is that true believers will hold fast to their profession. Back in chapter 3 and verse 6, he said, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. In chapter 3 and verse 14, he says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. What's that? That's the human side of salvation. That is that we hold fast. We persevere. You know, the Bible makes it clear that there's a great danger in people coming to the point of decision and falling away. Remember in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gave the parable of the sower. And he said the sower went out to sow and some of his seed fell by the road and the birds came along and devoured it. And then when Jesus applied that principle, he said that that represents people who hear the word but don't understand. And the evil one snatches it away. And then he says some of the seed fell on rocky ground and the seed sprang up but it had no depth of root, and when the sun came out, it withered. And he says that's the person who receives the word with joy, but then when persecution comes, he falls away. And then he says there's other seed that falls among the thorns, and it grows up along with the thorns, and the thorns choke it out. And Jesus says those thorns are the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And what do they do? They choke out the word so that it has no fruit and then he says there's a fourth kind of soil it falls on good soil and that's the person who hears and understands and bears fruit some a hundred fold some sixty fold some thirty fold now that's an interesting parable but you know what when you look at that parable it seems to indicate to me that three out of four people who hear the gospel fall away without believing. So the writer of Hebrews says, hold on and draw near. He's been calling us on the basis of the consequences if we don't. Now he turns to calling us on the basis of the blessings if we do. Notice verse 14, it begins, since then we have a great high priest. Now, a high priest was someone who represented the people before God. He acted as a mediator between man and God. And Jesus is our great high priest because who could better represent us before God? Who could be a better mediator between man and God than Jesus because He is God and He is man? You know, the priesthood of Jesus is a major theme in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 1, He's the one who made purification of sins. In chapter 2, we're told that He is a, a merciful and faithful high priest. In chapter 3, He's called the high priest of our confession. 
When we get to chapter 7 to 9, the focus is almost entirely on the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 4 and verse 14, he is called a great high priest. And we said the theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ. We saw in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, that he is superior to the Old Testament prophets. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 3 through the end of chapter 2, he's superior to the angels. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, he's superior to Moses. Chapter 3, verse 8, he's superior to Joshua. And now we see that he is superior to all the other high priests. He is our great high priest. And in these three verses, we're going to see three features that make him great. I've listed them in your bulletin. The first one is his perfect priesthood in verse 14. Verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. It says he passed through the heavens. What does that mean? Well, if you pass through the heavens, you have passed into the presence of God. So when it says he is our high priest who has passed through the heavens, that means he has gone into the very presence of God. Now, when you think about it, the earthly high priest could only go into the holy of holy places. The tabernacle was set up. It had an outer courtyard. Then it had a holy place. And then inside it had a holy of holy places. And inside that holy of holy places was the Ark of the Covenant. On top of it was the mercy seat. The high priest could only go into the holy of holy places one time of year. Leviticus 16 tells us on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and when he entered, he had to enter with blood and he had to sprinkle it on the mercy seat first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And if he stayed there any longer than he was supposed to stay there, if he went in and said, you know, I think I'll just dilly-dally around and check out this place, he would die. In fact, history tells us that oftentimes they would tie a rope around his ankle. So when he went in in case he died, they could drag him out. He could go in only one day out of the year, and he did this time after time after time, year after year after year. You know what Jesus did? He didn't just go into the earthly holy of holy places. He passed through the heavens right into the presence of God. And he isn't just our high priest. He is our sacrifice. And so you know what he did when he got into the holy place, the holy of holy places, the presence of God, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 10, 12, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. When he got there, he sat down. Why? Because his work was finished. Earthly priests never sat down. In fact, there were no seats in the tabernacle. There's only one seat, and that's the mercy seat, and no one was going to sit on the mercy seat. And the reason priests never sat down is their work was never done. Jesus finished His work, passed through the heavens into the presence of God, and He sat down. You know, the Old Testament priest on the Day of Atonement would take the blood of the sacrifice and then he would go through three areas. He would enter into the outer courtyard, the first area. Then he would go into the holy place, the second area. 
Then he would go behind the veil into the holy of holy places, the third area. Well, Jesus, our high priest, also went through three areas. He went through the first heaven, which is the earth's atmosphere. Then he went through the second heaven, which is interstellar space. And then he went into the third heaven that 2 Corinthians chapter 12 calls paradise, the abode of God. And so this verse says he passed through the heavens. He is our great high priest. And I was thinking about what it is that makes his priesthood perfect. And I just thought of a, th a few things that Hebrews underlines. Number one is his personality. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26 says, It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Earthly priests had to offer a sacrifice first for themselves because they were sinners, and then for the people. Jesus was a perfect person, and so he had no sacrifice for himself. His personality. Second was his position. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Other priests simply went into the tabernacle. Jesus passed through the heavens. They operated in a man-made copy. He went into the true and real holy of holy places. That was his position. And then third, we see his purpose. And it's right at the end of the verse I just read. I don't know if you caught it. It says, He went into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. What was his purpose in dying? What was his purpose in going in the presence of God as our high priest? It was to represent us before God. And he did that in a perfect way. In fact, we can say today, God is satisfied. And then fourthly, I would say his perpetuity. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 24 says, Because he abides forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know what Jesus is doing in heaven right now? He's sitting down because his work is done, and he is interceding he is praying if you like for you and me which tells me that as a Christian I can never have sins held against me because Jesus is in heaven today constantly interceding for me that's why in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 a familiar verse that we all should know it says if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know what it says two verses later? 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate means a defense lawyer. He is in heaven as my defense lawyer. He is interceding for me. And whenever I sin, the evil one says, did you see what Dan Green did? And what happens? Jesus defends me. And you know what my defense is? It's real simple. Jesus died for me. 
Because Jesus is in heaven interceding for us, Paul could say in Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? No one can accuse us when Jesus is interceding for us. And how long will He be interceding? Forever. And when is He going to stop? Never. You see, we have a great high priest. Well, let me add a footnote. You know, in the Old Testament, the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron were set aside to be priests of the nation. These were men who had distinctive dress, they were given special privileges, and they represented the people before God. But at the cross, all of that changed. And there is no distinct order of priests in the church. Now, there are people who call themselves by that title today, but God doesn't call them by that title. You see, Jesus is the one and only high priest, and every believer is a priest under Him. 1 Peter 2.5 calls us as the church a holy priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9 says we are a royal priesthood. Revelation 1.6 says we are a kingdom of priests. If you are a Christian, you are a priest. Now that doesn't mean you wear a collar or you wear a robe. You know what that means? When we get to verse 16, we're going to see what it means. It means that we have access into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God through our high priest, Jesus Christ. And when we get later on in the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, he's going to tell us what some of our sacrifices are as priests. You see, as priests, we're not offering bulls and goats. We're not repeating the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on a regular basis. What we are doing is we are offering sacrifices of praise to our God. If you're a believer, you are a priest. And we don't need any designated man to represent us before God. We simply need to go to Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. He is the one mediator between man and God. And through Him, we have access into the very presence of God. That's why when Jesus cried, it is finished, and died on the cross, you remember what happened? That veil in the temple, that veil that was keeping people out of the holy of holy places, that veil was ripped from the top to the bottom. And God was saying, there is no barrier anymore. Because of the cross, the door into my presence is open. And so I would say to you, that anyone today who is claiming to have some unique office of priest is undermining the full and final priesthood of Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest because of His perfect priesthood. And then secondly, He is our great high priest because of His perfect person. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, I love this verse. I hope you love this verse. You know, most people have the idea that God is far away somewhere and that He's unable to relate to us. But you know, the beauty is that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And He felt everything that I feel. And He was tempted in every way that I am tempted. And yet He never sinned. 
And when you come to him, he can relate. When you come to him, he knows exactly where you're at. He's been where you are. When you come to him, Jesus can say, been there, done that. I used to have a, a professor who summed it up this way. He'd, he used to say, Jesus knows what it's like to have burnt toast in the morning. You see, Jesus knows where you hurt. He has felt the pain that you feel. He knows what it's like to lose his father at a young age. He knows what it's like to have his family turn away from him. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be homeless. He knows what it's like to have his friends betray him and deny him and turn their back on him. He knows what it's like to kneel at the grave of a friend and weep. In fact, he knows even more than you have experienced because he knows what it's like to die. He knows what it's like to be in a grave. He can be touched with the feelings of your weaknesses because he has experienced them. And Jesus knows temptation like you and I will never know. I used to have a friend who said, I, I don't have a problem with temptation. I give in. Well, see, when we give in to temptation early on in the process, we don't really feel the whole impact of that temptation. The only one who feels the full intensity of temptation is the one who never gives in, and that's Jesus Christ. He experienced the full impact of what it was to be tempted because he never gave in to the sin. Now, when's the last time you sweat, as it were, great drops of blood? We have a great high priest. You see, I may try to minister to you in your need, and you'll say, Dan, you have no idea what I'm going through. And I have to say to you, you're right. I don't understand. I can't relate. But Jesus can. John Wilson often told the following story. He told about Booth Tucker, who was preaching in Chicago at the Salvation Army Citadel. And he was preaching one time, and his, the title of his sermon was The Sympathy of Christ. And a man came up to him after his sermon, and he said, you can say how Christ is dear to you and helps you and how he's so sympathetic, but if your wife had just died as mine did, and your children were crying for their mother who will never return, you wouldn't say what you're saying. Well, a few days later, Booth Tucker's wife was killed in a train wreck. And they brought her body to Chicago and she was taken to the Salvation Army headquarters for the funeral. And at the end of the funeral, Booth Tucker stood up and he looked down into the face of his beloved wife and his children's mother and he said, you know, the other day when I was here, a man said that I could not say Christ was sufficient if my wife were dead and my children were crying for their mother. If that man is here, I tell him that Christ is sufficient. My heart is broken. My heart is bleeding. My heart is crushed. But it has a song, and Christ 
put it there. If that man is here this morning, I tell him that though my wife is gone and my children are motherless, Jesus Christ speaks comfort to me today. Well, that man was there. And Dr. John Wilson says, down the aisle he came and knelt by the casket of Booth Tucker's dead wife. And Booth Tucker introduced him to Jesus Christ. We have a great high priest. He is perfect in person. And then the third thing that makes him great is his perfect provision in verse 16. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Now where are we invited to draw near? The throne. That's the throne of God. It used to be a throne of judgment, but when Jesus, our high priest, sprinkled His blood on it, He turned it into a throne of grace. And how do we draw near? Like this? No. It says we draw near with confidence. We draw near with boldness. That's an amazing thought. You and I are welcomed into the throne room of God. And He says you can walk in with boldness. Now historically, no one even walked into the throne of a human king with confidence. In fact, you go back to the Old Testament. In Esther chapter 4 and verse 11, it tells us that Queen Esther risked her life by going in to see the king uninvited, even though she was his wife. And yet you are invited to come with confidence to the throne of the God of the universe. And who is our confidence in? Ourselves? Our worthiness? No. Our confidence is in our high priest. You see, I am confident that Jesus Christ has taken my judgment. And the only thing that I will receive when I come to the throne of God is grace and mercy. You see, that's what makes verses 12 and 13 so exciting. You see, we covered verses 12 and 13 last time, but if you go back to those verses, I want you to notice something. It says in verse 12, for the Word of God is living and active. The Word of God is living and active. It's more than dusty history. It's more than lofty literature. It's more than some compilation of ideas. It is living and active. It is ever in the present tense. It is always speaking. The ink on the Word of God is always fresh. And what is it actively doing? Look at verse 12 again. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What does the word do? It cuts, it slices, it dissects. It, it dissects us physically, joints and marrow. It dissects us spiritually, soul and spirit. It dissects us mentally, right down to the thoughts. It dissects us emotionally in our heart. It cuts all the way down to our intentions, our motives. It reveals all. And I want you to notice something. The Word of God is a two-edged sword. 
Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 tells us it's part of the armor of God. We are to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is the only offensive weapon that we have as Christians. But what I like is it's, it's a two-edged sword, which tells me that it cuts forward into the world, but at the same time it cuts backwards into me. Have you experienced that? You use it as an offensive weapon, but it's also slicing you open. And that's really what verse 13 says. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Word of God does in a practical way what is already true in reality. It lays us wide open before God. It's been said that when you read the Bible... The Bible reads you. Now that's a scary thought. The Word of God slices me open, shows my motives, shows my hidden thoughts, reveals me naked before God, sliced open in His presence, everything revealed. That's a scary thought until I come to verse 16 and realize that even standing naked and ashamed before God, I can draw near with confidence to the throne and find mercy and grace. That's why I love to get knifed by the Word. That's why people come up to me after a message, they say, well, I didn't enjoy that, but, it, but it, I needed it. it. It cut me. You know what happens when the Word cuts us? It hurts initially, but it really reveals what we really need. And we're drawn to the Lord to receive that mercy and grace that we need. You know, there's an incident in the life of Joshua that sets the precedent for how this works. Right after the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, or crossed the, correct my history, crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, it says in Joshua chapter 5 that Joshua was, sta was standing by Jericho. Now, I don't know what he was thinking. It doesn't tell us what he was thinking, but he's standing by Jericho. Jericho was the city with the big walls. And he's thinking, all right, God told me we've got to take this land and look at that city. How will we ever take that city? And while he's standing by Jericho, it says opposite him was a man with his sword raised. And Joshua asked him a question. He said, are you for us or are you for our enemy? And the response was, no. I am the captain of the host of the Lord. Now, I take that individual to be a pre-incarnate visit of Jesus Christ because in the next verse, he says, take off your shoes because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. It's like Moses with the burning bush. This is Jesus Christ appearing to him. He's got his sword raised, and Joshua says, are you on my team or their team? And you know what the answer is? Neither. Because there's a problem with that question. Lord, are you on my team or their team? That's not the question. The question is, are you on my team? You see, he's the one with the sword raised. And you know what Joshua does if you read that passage? Joshua falls down at his feet in complete surrender. Joshua is there by Jericho, he falls down and surrender to Jesus Christ. You know what the next thing that happens in his life is? They conquer Jericho. 
I think there's a great principle here. Don't miss this. Private surrender leads to public victory. You have to fall under the sword in order to effectively use the sword. It's a double-edged sword. I can't just use it to conquer for the Lord. It also conquers me. It lays me open before the Lord and I have to be honest before Him. And it's only in that honesty before Him that God is able to use me in victory. Aren't you thankful for the last words in verse 16 of Hebrews 4? That we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. I love that word need. When we come to the throne of God, we deserve judgment. But God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need. Mercy and grace. And when is our time of need? I don't know about you. My time of need is always. I'm always in need of God's mercy and God's grace. But if you're here this morning and you have never entrusted your life to Jesus Christ, then I can say to you that today is your day of need. This is your time when you need the mercy and grace of the Lord. And so I would ask you in closing to draw near to God's throne and to acknowledge Jesus Christ as your high priest. He saves, He sympathizes, and He satisfies your greatest need. Won't you come to Him today? I'm going to ask the praise team to come back. We're going to close with a praise song. As we do, I'm going to ask you to stand. If you're here today and you've never entrusted your life to Jesus Christ, I would love to pray with you and to show you how you can come to know Him. There are others here today who want to join this fellowship. You can come as we sing together. And also we'll ask Larry to come who was baptized today. Let's stand as we sing in closing.